Hello friends, special announcement before this week's episode. Friend of the show, Jeff Miller, you know, Jeff from episode 36, former coach of the Fanshawe Falcons, LVC, Camp Madawaska, and many other teams. Well, Jeff and some amazing people started the golf brand, Club Jason. Designed with quality in mind, Jason sets no limits on comfort, feel, and appeal. They are devoted to growing the game of golf and creating opportunities for those who could benefit greatly from a little extra support. 10% of all sales will go to a Club Jason scholarship for a female golfer, and additional 10% of all sales will go towards junior golf programs in Ontario. As an official friend of Passing Dimes, Jeff would like to pass on 15% off your next order and free shipping in North America on any order over $99. Visit clubjason, C-L-U-B-J-S-O-N.com and use promo code DIMES at checkout. Club Jason. Join the club. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. He's already a friend of the show because he's battled through a snowstorm in Utah to join us today. So today's guest is a vet on the AVB tour. He started playing in 2006. He's represented the USA in over 13 FIB events. He's won five Norseka medals. He took a top 10 at Pan Am Games. He played his indoor at Delaware and George Mason, and he's the founder of Better at Beach Volleyball. Please welcome to the show, Mark Burrick. Mark, thanks for doing this, man. Absolutely. The crowd's going wild. That's a nice intro. You know, I didn't. That's, I've never heard uh, five North Sagan medals before. That's funny. I guess that's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, I think you won a Cayman, and then some of the Canadian listeners we have, they'll remember you. You came to North Bay one year, I think, and you guys took a silver. Uh, Ontiveros and Virgin, I think the top Mexico team is who you played in the final. They were tough. I think they, they crushed us in that final. <laughs> um, they did. They're so good. But I love North Bay. That, like, the crew of, I guess, helpers and volunteers was the most organized and, like, the best support staff you could ask for. And when you talk about North Seca events, not to <laughs> rattle anyone's cage, but it is a monstrous disorganization. <laughs> you show up and you land at the airport and you... You literally don't know what to do now. Like you don't know the name of your hotel. You don't know how you're supposed to get there, and you just kind of hope. Yeah, we've had some great uh, Norseka stories over the years, and with you guys played like AVP, fourteen forty, Pan Am Games, Norseka FIB. I'm sure we'll get into that in a second. But where I wanted to start was uh, you being an East Coast guy and doing some research for the show. You were a pretty darn good football and baseball player, but played volleyball your last year of high school. So I'm just wondering, how did that all come together? Because it sounds like your siblings went on to play baseball and football at like the post secondary level, but you turned into a volleyball guy, right? Yeah, um, it's pretty weird. I mean, our whole family was sporty, right? So I got three older brothers, and yeah, all we did was beat each other up and play sport. <laughs> and, but I went to high school with the with the mindset that I was going to play football and probably tennis, actually. But when it came to tennis, they they said that baseball season was the same season as tennis. So when I got to high school. I asked both coaches, I was like, hey, I'll play on both teams. They're like, no, you're not. You can't play on two teams at the same time. So then I chose baseball. I was playing baseball and, and football all through high school. And then my junior year, I don't know. I just started uh, hanging out with some of the volleyball guys. And I really liked the coach. He was our gym teacher. And I sort of... You know, I'll, I'll pass over the details, but it was it was a stressful time because all you're thinking about as a high school kid is scholarship, scholarship. How do I pay for college? How do I pay for college? And so I made the decision my junior year to play volleyball because I thought 
hey, it seems pretty good. I've never played this sport. And maybe I have a chance for a scholarship. I had no idea. And you couldn't convince me otherwise because a couple of people told me that there are like 21 Division One colleges available with four scholarships per piece per, per school. So you're trying to compete for like 80 scholarships across the entire country. And I was thinking that never having played the sport. And I was like, yeah, I'll get a scholarship. <laughs> <laughs> so then after that, like I, I ended up playing volleyball my junior year. And then I went right back to baseball the following year, my senior year. And then finally I went to college for football anyway. So it was all like a moot point. Oh, is that how you ended up at Delaware? It wasn't for volleyball, but you, you chose to pursue football first. Yeah, I had a, a couple, you know, offers, like not full, full ride, but some people offering money and then half academic to play football. But I decided that I, even if I wasn't going to get a scholarship or money, that I wanted to be in a place where I could grind for two years and earn my way onto a big time school. So Division Division One AA, Delaware, University of Delaware, we competed against pretty big schools and that's where I wanted to be. I didn't want to go and play for a coach who's like, yeah, we're going to give you a starting role when you're a freshman and you weigh 187 pounds. <laughs> I wanted to be in a place where I could really grow and develop. Um, and I had to work a lot harder in a bigger, a bigger pond. That's when I chose Delaware. But then in the end, we actually won a national championship my freshman year. So that was my red shirt year. It wasn't even competing, but just lifting and getting my butt kicked. And then I found volleyball again <laughs> during that time. And throughout my freshman year of college, volleyball like sort of started consuming my interest more than football. So at the end of my freshman year, beginning of sophomore year, I decided that I would pursue volleyball full time. So I quit football and then went on to play club volleyball and the rest is pretty much history. And I'm curious. You mentioned you, you did have eyes on like bigger schools and stuff like that, but how do you go about transferring? Like, how did you end up at George Mason? Like, did the coach approach you? Did you approach them? Like, what is the, the process in terms of switching schools and keeping eligibility and everything that goes into it? So I, I used my red shirt my freshman year, which means that I use like for NCAA you at the time, I actually don't know the rules now, but you had a five-year time span in which you could use four years to compete. So I used one of my years, not my competition years, but I used my redshirt year, my freshman year for college, uh, for college football. And then when I decided after staying around University of Delaware, my sophomore year, that's when I started sending out tapes to colleges. I sent tapes to everyone. Like I just wanted a spot. I remember I made um, 21 I think I, I think there were VHS tapes. I don't think I made DVDs. Pretty nice. sure it was VHS. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I sent them out, and it was basically like, "Hey, I don't need a scholarship. I don't need anything. I just need an invite. Like, let me get on on your team." And one of them worked out in terms of my major, which was sport business, um, and then I converted it to exercise science. So there were similar classes that would pay off and that was at mason george mason university and the guy totally the coach fred chow um who i actually love now i didn't it was he ghosted me like he didn't even ghost me because he ignored me 
I didn't hear a response. I didn't get a phone call, not an email back. And eventually I made a second or third round of calling coaches and contacting them saying like, Hey, is anybody interested at all? (laughs) Um, And that coach said, yeah, you can come and try out. And I was like, boom, that's my opening. I'm there. Uh, So I had to transfer schools just to try out. And the transfer process was pretty easy. I think I just called the school and was like, hey, I want to go to your school. And they said, okay, let's check your your paperwork. And I don't even remember that process. And I don't even remember it being hard. But I just sent them my transcripts. And within a week or two, they're like, yeah, you can attend. Wow. Wow. Nice. And Again, most of our listeners are based in Canada, so you'll have to help us out here. You did mention the the lack of NCAA D1 schools at that time. Where What is the jump from club ball to Georgia Mason? Like, Did you find that that was the level you were pursuing and it was going to be another step for you in your career? Or like, When you say club ball, how competitive was that at Delaware? And then, like I said, how much of a jump was it to go to Mason? That's a good, that's a really good and probably important question. So here in the U.S., at least... There, the club programs, when it's a club program at a college, that means that it's student-run. So the school usually provides no financial support. You basically have to beg or pay the school for court time um, and the ability to represent them. But they're providing no funding, no coaching staff, um, no support like a varsity program would. So as a club athlete, we practiced my first year or my first few months there, we practiced twice a week, which is not much at all. And since I was kind of on my way out from football, I was like, well, why are we only practicing two times a week? Don't you guys want to win? <laughs> like it, it makes sense to me to play a sport and get upset if you lose, if you're not doing everything you can to win. So... By the end of my freshman year, I had found a way to get it up to four practices. And I started rubbing a lot of people like the upperclassmen the wrong way because they're saying, Mark, this is a club sport. We understand that you come from football where you guys practice 14 times a week. We don't want that. And that was my first kind of cue to say, I think I need to go to a a program that's school funded where we're going to practice five, six times a week and travel and have a, a support staff because that's really where I thought I would blossom. And that's where I thought the better players were. So the jump athletically can be massive, but it doesn't have to be. It's just that the, the varsity athletes are the ones who are getting coaching, getting training, getting funding, and they get um, scholarship. The club program, just student run, people kind of hanging out. That being said, they are legit club volleyball players who are like absolutely nasty and can, if they wanted to play at the division one level, like the Penn state club men's program, they, they just keep winning championships, but their, their club team is made up of all of the like juniors and seniors that kind of got tired of playing for the varsity team. So these are varsity, like rock star volleyball players who just decided, eh, I'd rather practice three times a week than six. So that's kind of the difference in, in jump level between like varsity in college and club in college. But it's a little bit of a weird system, I guess. Nice. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And I am curious, mentioning that you are kind of labeled as a football guy when you first started playing. Was there anything that 
overlapped really well that you found volleyball enjoying or were there some things there that like like some of your teammates pointed out maybe you just brought a certain intensity or a certain way that you carried yourself that maybe volleyball guys don't act the same way right so was there anything that like helped you or anything that was kind of a negative label on you in the beginning not that i know of i do think that a little bit of the fight kind of really kind of fight mentality was a little bit missing from volleyball. Like when I went into it, it was just a war. Like the way I prepared for competition was this person will step on, like um, will step on my neck if they get the chance while I'm like lying down next to them, you know? So I need to make sure that I'm ready to do battle and that I hate this person <laughs> across, <laughs> across the field from me. And so when I kind of brought that to volleyball, it's definitely competitive and it's chippy. But I always kind of didn't like the idea that if somebody talks a lot of smack on the other side of the net, you can't really go and hunt him down the next play like you can in football. <laughs> <laughs> and that, like, I might make a, a ton of enemies right there just in that statement. But that's how I've felt for a long time. Like, oh, okay, you know, he's talking smack, he's making fun of you, he's embarrassing you in front of the audience. And all you can do is like hit a high line on him. You know, <laughs> very true. Equal. So, um, I kind of brought a little bit of the the fight, maybe meathead mentality to volleyball. Um, and I w will say that I had to lose a lot of my upper body mass uh, when I was doing football because I had to eat relentlessly, and it, it, it got to the point where I was so nauseous every day from eating that I, it was a relief to play volleyball. Where I didn't have to force food myself like that anymore. Oh man, good, good, good to hear that. So I'm curious, how did the the jump to the beach happen? So I mentioned earlier, you're an East Coast guy. I think you grew up in New York State. So for you to start playing on the ABP in 2006, did you have experience playing beach volleyball as a kid, or when did you start playing this twos game? When I started playing for a club in college, I just had the idea. Hey, California is where the best volleyball players are. So that's where I have to be. So during the summers, I found an internship and I went to San Diego and I stayed on somebody's couch for an entire summer so that I could get as many reps as possible. And I didn't really differentiate. I didn't think that like the beach and the indoor game were so different. To me, it was always automatically it's volleyball reps. You know, like there's this current argument over does beach make indoor players better does it ruin their game you know can you can you play both at the same time i never even had that discussion i was like yeah it's volleyball i'm gonna pass that and spike so that's what i want to do so it was only beach was only to get better at indoor and with no guidance or nobody telling me that that's what i had to do it was just hey it's easier to find three other people than it is 11 other people <laughs> and, and renting a gym so it was only my path to get better at indoor for a long time. Nice. And I think as a Canadian, we're pretty envious of the, the, the domestic opportunities you have there. Cause interesting to hear that you started pretty young on the AVP tour. I believe you won a young guns tournament in 2009 or 2010, right? So was it just nice having competitive events that you could play almost locally? Cause I don't think you made the jump to international until maybe 2014 or 2015. Is that right? It was only when I started taking beach volleyball full time that I actually saw like, an increase in my results. 
and going international because I was playing indoor professionally during the winters, fall, winter, and spring. And I would come out for like, you know, three months and play beach and do okay, you know, win a young guns tournament. But it was, it was part time. And then when I started taking it full time, that's when I saw like the biggest kind of jump in where I went and international opportunities for beach. But it's a hundred percent. It's a blessing to be able to go pretty much anywhere in the U S and find tournaments, whether they're great or poor, like people are running tournaments in, you know, maybe not every state, but every part of the U S and that's huge. And it's huge that the ABP was around. It's huge that Jose Cuervo, the Jose Cuervo tour picked it up when the ABP wasn't around and the ABP came back. And it was huge that, um, the NBL was there, you know, like everybody keeps wanting professional beach volleyball in the U S to stay alive. And there are a lot of individuals that really fought hard to make that happen. And currently it's Donald Dunn and he's been rushing it for a while. So yeah, it's definitely a blessing. And, and I know that Canadians are a little bit envious that we have a really strong, strong opportunities in so many places in the country. So we, I think if people in the U S don't feel lucky, we definitely should. And, I, and I'm curious if you could give an example when you mentioned you, you flipped that switch and you went full time, because uh, I think if California ever does get a negative knock, it's let's find four guys and we'll bring a, a stereo to the beach and we'll just play games. Right. Versus like, did you have a coach? Did you have a training group? Did you have a full time partner? Like what were some of the things that you noticed that when you went all in to be a beach player, like what did you start adding to your routine to make you feel like you were full time? Hmm. It was just about playing year round. Um, getting those reps and yeah, I think you're actually right. Like, I think that that year was the first year that I had actually received coaching in beach volleyball. And that was with the USA high performance squad. They picked a group of people who they thought were, were not the current a list, uh, international players, but could potentially represent the U S well with some training. And that was, there was a lot of guys there, but it was the first time that I was legitimately getting advice from people who had seen the game at the championship level. And so many light bulb moments happened in like the first four months. They're just like, God damn it. If I had this coach or that, you know, if they had told me that when I was 21, 20 years old, that would have saved me thousands of points. <laughs> and that's what I like. I keep trying to, Help people understand that, that when you get one piece of coaching advice that you hadn't heard before, or they say it in a certain way, it's not one piece of coaching advice. That's thousands of points over your life that you're now going to be more successful or you're going to win because of that. And I'm, I'm thankful for like for Jeff Alzina and Mike Dodd, who are the leaders of the, uh, the high performance program while I was there because I got a ton of really good advice. And uh, I was able to apply it. Amazing. Amazing to hear that. Thanks for sharing all that you have so far. And I'm, and I'm curious with the amount of depth in the USA. And like you said, you can play domestics and, and play really good teams. How do you eventually find yourself on the national team? Is it results based? Like, how do you declare that you want to go to an international event? Like, what are some of the logistical details before you could represent the USA at like a Norseco or an FIVB? 
So Norseka is interesting. They have a, uh, we call it Norseka, but uh, <laughs> we have a Norseka playoff. And what that is, is anybody can sign up. Anybody in the country can sign up for a Norseka playoff. But the top 12 teams in points get into it. So they take points from international. Those are weighted the highest. And then they go to like AVP, so the USA, the USA Volleyball Federation. They take a look at all of these different events and they sort of assign them a point scale. And international events are weighted the highest. AVP events are weighted the next highest. And then I think they also take into to account some other tournaments. And it's just, but it never gets down to those tournaments. Because the top teams that are trying out for international, they have those type of points. Once you have the top 12 teams there, then it's a one-day single elimination playoff. For uh, that single playoff day, gets you three, the next three North Sega events. Nice. And I know you commented earlier on, on going to the North Bay event. I'm curious when you finally get your chance and you're going to your first, uh, pardon my pronunciation, Norseka, Norseka. Uh, was it a little disillusional because the, it was an international event? It, it's supposed to be hyper to this thing, but I, I honestly believe that you probably played in a Jose Cuevo or an AVP that was probably more organized or probably had more fans at it. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely... I don't know. Norseka is because of, of how everybody talks about it. You know, it's, it's not like it was a big shock to me that I was going to the Caribbean or going to North Bay and that it was like, all right, they have some metal stands set up and it, it might be in somebody's backyard. <laughs> um, but it wasn't, it wasn't shocking because we all talk about it. It's, we, I think we know that we have a really, we represent, maybe not anymore, but we definitely did represent the standard of professional events as the AVP, and that like that came from our country. And that even for a while, you take a look at people who are playing in World Tour events, and you're like, yeah, the AVP is probably better, you know, like more fun, more organized, set up to encourage people. But then, you know, you got the uh, the Red Bull guy. What's his name? Hannes. Yes. Yeah. All those events like Austria, uh, Klagenfurt, and he just absolutely annihilated events. You know, he <laughs> he showed the rest of the world what a beach volleyball event would be. But I wasn't surprised when I went to North Sake and there was like, you know, forty people who were on vacation and stumbled upon a beach volleyball tournament. Uh, it was more just I was stoked to have my country's letters on my chest and to be able to compete against the best from other countries. Um, but you know how it is. It's it's USA versus Mexico and Canada. And that's like that's what North Sake events are. Oh and Cuba. So it's Cuba, Mexico, Canada, and US and we're all competing in the medal round. And below that it's rare that a team will challenge any of those uh any of those questions 
Now, any of our listeners who have ever seen you play, this story is not going to surprise them, but I actually got the chance to see you play live. We were in China at Chin Zhao. I think it was a three-star there. And I was traveling with some Canadian teams and we were all eliminated by the first day. So I used to just set up by the first side court with my own umbrella and, and basically practice data volley on the first court. And the reason I remember you is I think Billy had a huge kill and you guys cheered and the ref was trying to be like a bit of a fun sucker and gave you guys the whistle. And you turned to them and said, no, this is fun. Volleyball's fun. We're going to have fun. And basically argued that you were going to be allowed to cheer and that like they were in the wrong for stopping your celebration. And I'm just curious, was that an isolated incident or is this how you carry yourself all the time when you play? <laughs> um, I have, a, I have a short history of yellow and red cards. <laughs> Um, I do 100% believe in my heart that, uh, they should let players talk and chip at each other, that you should be allowed to dance a little bit that, you know, so long as you're not coming in blows, that this is a competition and competition should strike some intensity and desire and passion in you. And then when you're trying to, you know, withhold that, Fans don't like that. They like passion. They like when you get into it. You know, like when when somebody stares somebody down, the entire stadium goes, oh. <laughs> and then like the people who weren't watching the match, like, wait, 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 what's happening? What's happening? You know, so it creates more of a story for the sport. The sport is amazing on its own, and that should stand on its own two feet, and it does. But I like the drama that comes with sports, and I think it should be encouraged, not completely knocked down so that anyone who's watching believes like, oh, this person's happy, but he's not really happy. You know, he's like <laughs> withholding because the ref is making it. So I, I think that that should change. And I think that that would make it a more, more engaging for fans. So no, that definitely was not an isolated incident. <laughs> I tell refs that we should be allowed to have fun and be allowed to be mad at the other team anytime we want. And so long as we're not ruining it and coming like to the blows and I'm down with it. I don't know. I, like I said, from football, I guess I just enjoy the battle a little bit more. In your experience, is the AVP a little bit more forgiving than say like an FIV event where, you know, you got to wear matching shorts and you got to wear the, the competition top of the Gibby where AVP seems to be a little bit more loose on that stuff. Are the refs also a little bit more loose where, like in Canada here, I think everyone's a fan of Rosie's Raiders and we know of this this mythical crowd that just follows them around and chirps everybody. And some of our guys have been victims to it in the past, right? So uh, I'm curious, is the AVP a little bit more on the entertainment side than kind of the FIB almost balances like a gentleman's game trying to combine with beach volleyball at times? Yeah, I, I would say you're spot on there. The AVP doesn't let you carry on. They They will be quick to blow a whistle if you flex too hard on somebody across the net. But they do for sure. It's a lot less of a business and a lot more of a show on the AVP, which is kind of good. The, the FIVB is business. You are there, you put your head down, like say hello to somebody you might've met at another tournament, but you get your warm ups in, you go back to your hotel, all of this kind of, magic that you thought was oh my god like players parties and everybody like you go into a hotel and you're staying with all these athletes you talk to a couple of teams but that's it people are with their coaches heads down they're ready to do battle and 
if you lose at that level, it means that you need to work harder and that you just spent, you know, $3,000 to lose. So you're not really in the mood to go and make friends or anything. It's very business, business on the AV, on the FIBB. AVP, the refs are a little bit looser with like time constraints and a tiny bit looser with uh, the passion, like basically, you know, back talking and whatever. But yeah, that's my take on it. And I think they're, I think they're embracing it because of the mic'd up situation. Uh, have you, have you heard any of the mic'd ups on the, on the AVP? A little bit. Like I think Trevor Crabb would maybe be the one that comes to mind that I just love listening to that guy or they, I know during the, the, the COVID tournaments they did run, I was a big fan of like the mic and the coach's box and hearing what some coaches and Jason Lockett and some other guys had to say that I thought that the broadcasting for that event was, was top tier to me. Yeah. It's that behind the scenes, you know, like when you watch NFL films, if, there, if you have any football fans out there and you hear what people are saying on the field, that's so entertaining. That's why there's an entire like NFL channel <laughs> because people like want to hear what people say. They want to be on the inside. And when you see somebody's passion on the court, you attach to that. You get to feel a little bit of their, of their passion and you understand them or you're disgusted by them. In which case they become the villain and you still have a story. I don't know. There <laughs> my take on it. And I was hoping to draw from your experience where it looks like you have the ability to play with different guys and still get the most out of them where there's been guys that you've invested with and played a couple seasons and played like 25 events with. And then there's kind of these one-offs where it looks like you'll find a partner for this event or, or this domestic event coming up. So I'm curious when you are looking for partners, is that just your love of the game where if somebody calls you up and says, Hey, do you want to go to the Seattle AVP? Like you're in, and it doesn't matter if you've practiced with that person before, or how, how do these one-off events come together? And then how do you treat it differently? If you know, like say Ian Satterfield, you're going to play with for a few events and go to a, a multi-sport games like Pan Am with. Yeah, man, that's tough. I mean, your goal, right? Your goal is to find somebody that it clicks with, that you win with, and that you just kind of want to finish your career with. Like when I was playing with Kurt Topple, for example, emotionally, the way we battled together, the way we played together, I understood completely where he was coming from. And he got me and I sort of curbed a little bit of my hardcore mentality for him because he was out there as a freak athlete who probably could have been one of the best beach volleyball players in the world had beach volleyball provided a lot more money. Like Hertz basically a genius and can make as much money as you want in, in any field. And so he would always weigh beach volleyball hours against whatever else you could make in terms of money. So I had to kind of just like back off of him and let him enjoy it because that's why he was there. But Competing, I had so much fun competing with him and traveling with him and hanging out with him. Um, but eventually, you know, he the money thing outweighed anything else for him. So then you're kind of all right. Well, who can we play with now? And yeah, I'm always asking better players if they want to play, and you're trying to find the best partnership. There are players that you have this consideration of like. 
yeah, I'd be good athletically to play with them, but do I want to be on the court with them? Do I want to be hanging out with them? And the truth is that the majority of people, you see them on the court, we don't really know who they are. You know, there's, it's a lot of fun getting to travel with somebody and for the first time, be like, oh, this guy's pretty cool. <laughs> you know, where you had to, you had to hate him for most of your career because he was trying to take money from you. So, um, for a lot of those one-offs, there were a lot of like weird situations. Like I, I planned to play an entire season with Bill Kalinske, and then he decided not to um, sign with the AVP contract. Eventually, he came back and did, but I prepared for five months with him, and then it was, okay, he's not signing. Um, Avery Jost was playing with Robbie Page, and they had prepared the whole preseason. So... We had basically nine days to decide, hey, uh, Avery, I guess we're the only two left. You could be in the main draw together. Are we playing together? Yeah, we're playing together. So you're kind of like stuck into a situation. And sometimes those stuck situations, they do, they do well. And sometimes you didn't ask each other to play together before that for a reason. You know, like you just your games don't match up. It's really difficult to find that partnership when there are so many players and it's such an ego driven sport. Um, and you have the opportunity to, to look elsewhere. And so few people have dedicated full-time coaches that nobody's working on team building and the pathway and how you're going to get somewhere to the next step. And as a coach, now that like I coach with so many, so many athletes, a lot of the ones that I work with who are playing together, those are the first conversations that I start to have, like the emotional conversations. Like, hey, how do you turn how do you turn your partner on? How do you get turned on? How do you know if you're fired up? Like what fires you up? Because what fires you up might absolutely shut somebody else down. And a good coach has those conversations and forces those conversations. And I, I guess a good partner, which I wasn't always a good partner in my career, you should have those sit down conversations of how do I make you better? And this is how you make me better. So I think I'm becoming, at first I thought that I was becoming a, sorry if I'm going to do, I know. I'm <laughs> talking so much. I'm sorry. Um, I feel like I used to be better at my relationship because of volleyball. And now I'm getting to the point where I'm getting better at volleyball because of my romantic relationship with my fiance. Like those conversations of what can I do to make your day easier? What makes you upset? What really makes you happy? You know, for my fiance, it's, if the bed is done, like if I wake up after her and the bed is done, she's she's so happy on that. And it just, she does not like if there's a messy bed when she comes home. And I've never, before this woman, I have never made a bed in my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and now like if I wake up after her, I, I make the bed because it makes her happy. And I think more beach volleyball partners should be searching for those answers. And that these partnerships would last a lot longer if you had those conversations instead of the we didn't win. What's that conversation? 
Yeah, it's great to hear your process because even as I ask that question, my mind's going to, okay, do they play left or right side? What type of set are they going to give me? What type of set am I going to give them? And you're on like a totally different level of what the first conversation should be. And like you said, it just it's going to lead to a stronger partnership and hopefully last more than one season or one event or whatever it adds up being. You know, when you get together, you have to decide where do you want to be? Yeah, everybody wants to be on an AVP podium. Where are you now? What's your hitting percentage? How many digs do you get per game? How many blocks do you get per game? Okay, what's it going to take to win the AVP championship? So then you start designing your season, designing your training in in the macro sense. But having these little, okay, you know, tournament, we're going to win. But how are we going to win? And I think Germany's coach, when they won that gold medal, the German players talk about that guy like he was the absolute wizard slash savant. <laughs> <laughs> and he had dialed down to like the, you know, of a percentage of how they needed to side out, how many times they needed to force the other team out of system. And they want to go medal with him at the helm. And I asked one of the German players, I was talking what like, okay, so he figured out how fast you should float serve in order to make maximum float on the Mikasa ball. And he's like, yeah, yeah, all the national team players know. And I was like, oh man, how fast is it? He goes, well, I'm not the lead. Of course. <laughs> You know, like they treat it like it's like Bible. <laughs> and uh, so you have people who can who can really like master it and be at the helm. And those are great coaches. But then you also do have a lot of successful ones that kind of end up maybe on accident, maybe on purpose at the top. I think Todd Rogers is an example of somebody who is an excellent partner because he designed a pathway for him and in, in, in build out. Like it wasn't just Nothing happened on accident. There's a lot of stories of Todd made Phil do this. Todd made Phil do that. Right? And then that partner needs to be able to, you know, be open to that as well. And that has to have a, that has to happen in a conversation. And, and I'm curious what the sense is around AVP. So when you do line up against like a Sean Rosenthal in his prime or, or Phil and Todd, like, the whole crowd obviously knows who they are, but as a competitor, are you really excited to play these guys and have a chance to battle with them? Or is there a bit of a starstruck moment like the first time Todd Rogers walks by? Hmm. My mentality always went to, here's where my first story comes. You know, like if I'm like writing the book of my life, like, let's go, I'm getting on the court. This is going to be a big shock for everyone. I'm going to take them down. And I think that that can be an important mentality to have to make sure that you're not there going, oh my God, look at this person across the net for me. Because if you're too starstruck to do anything, or you think that everything you did to get to that point, now you need to change it because there's somebody two levels higher across the net for me, that is the wrong way. You got to that point because of what you're doing. So don't just make these radical changes that you've never done before. You know, I think I did get caught in that in a couple of matches. I was like, oh, okay, you know, that would never work against them. You know, what you've done to beat the other 99.9% of people in your country, that you just need to do that at a really high level to beat that last 0.1%. And there are plays that they make consistently with, you know, that the top 
teams make very, very consistently that you have to know, eh, all right, they are going to form their block even if they're off balance. They are going to make sure that they steal the line when you're near the end fence, so you can't really tool them. Um, but there's not there's not a stuff you should change about your game when you're going against a high level team because your job right there is to keep doing whatever got you there, and then you learn after that match. Not not change randomly during it, but do what you do. And then if you need to make adjustments, you do. I think most people come against a godly team and they just try to make these massive changes. All of a sudden, you play an entirely different game. But you can't do that. You can't change everything that you've done that's made you successful to that point. Nice. And it might take a couple layers to answer this next one, but I'm just curious when you started coaching or what was appealing to that? Because you mentioned... Like you, you come from an athletic family, and sports was a big part of your household. And then you mentioned you're part of the US HP program, and that's the first time you're getting feedback on the beach, and that really drew you to it. And then just anecdotes about talking to people at AVPs or hearing what the Germans did. Like, what really switched you on to coaching, and and how? I, I imagine you were still playing at the time when you started coaching, right? So was it kind of a balancing thing where coaching was going to help you playing, or? Did you really start to sway one way or the other when you got into it? So I've been coaching since I was 13 years old, which might sound a little bit insane, (laughs) but like my first job in this world was a tennis instructor. You know, I was 13. I was doing okay in my tennis clinic. And then there was the like four, five and six year old. So they, the head guy, he asked me if I wanted to help work with the younger players and he loved the way that I coach and he thought that I did it in a good way. And then the next summer he like put me in charge of these uh, 60, 50 and 60 year old women to teach them because he said, listen, just tell them you're 16. So I really had to like lie about my age for my first job <laughs> to make sure that like these women were being offended that I was barely in high school and trying to, to teach them, but I was doing a good job. My energy was high and I kept feeding them and I knew the feedback. And then I went into personal training in college. That's how I paid my way to a, a big part of college. And my first job, uh, my first pro indoor job came with responsibilities of being the team strength and conditioning coordinator. Like I was hired as an outside hitter and I had to be the strength and conditioning coordinator. So I just kept finding these coaching roles throughout my life. And it's always just been kind of a natural sidebar. Like I'm on the beach anyway. Why not just spend an extra two hours and make some extra cash uh, and do it? Especially since I enjoy it so much. I'm sure our listeners ears are perking up. Sorry to cut you off there, but what uh, club or league were you in that you got a pretty sweet deal where you were playing and also employed by the club? <laughs> um, that was Sweden. So my first year I was in Sweden. It was Rockers Volleyball Club in Sweden. Um, that's what I did there. Then I had a couple of surgeries, so I had to take the next season off, which was unfortunate because the top team in the league invited me back. Um, they picked me up and they were like, "Yeah, come play for us." And they like were winning championship after championship. Like, yes, 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 yes. But I had to get some surgery in my shoulder and then in my ab. 
Um, the following year, those opportunities had closed, and there was a team in Oslo, in Norway, that wanted a player coach. So I got to make like 1.5 salary by taking on two roles. And I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll do that. I'll play well, and then hopefully get like a real contract. But it was intriguing to me, and the pay was good, and there were were things to concede on a few points of the contract that I was really happy about. And then I went, I played like a true season in in Croatia, but I guess I had coached at that point so much that I could not stand the way this person led the team. I thought he was just intentionally driving the team into the ground. So I eventually quit that team, went back to Norway. Uh, they gave me my head coach and <laughs> and player rollback, and then I went back to my first ever club team in Sweden, and I was the head coach and outside hitter there. So I only really got five months as a true professional only player, which is really strange, I guess. <laughs> um, and you have to. There's a battle where you have to like. You have to learn to shut your coach off and just be an athlete. And I, I don't think that I've found that enough in my career where I'm like looking for how do we win instead of just staying in the moment and letting it rock. So um, I, I think I've overcoached at a lot of moments, uh, but it definitely has prepared me for whatever's down the road. But, uh, and were you aware of this when you're in your beach partnerships? Because I, I think it's tempting when you are in that pair to try to do the Todd and Phil model where Todd is the vet and he's kind of going to coach Phil up until he's ready to kind of either take over or there's a partner switch. Did you automatically go to that end of the spectrum where you were almost coaching up your partner? Or were you aware enough that if, if it was going to be a fit or if it was going to put too much stress on the relationship? Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a good, good question. Because I think so many players question themselves on that. Like, who am I? Am I Todd or Phil? You know, and I think so many people think that they are Todd, that they want to be the mastermind. And I 1000% overcoached in my career, like seeing what was possible, seeing like, hmm, if he makes this fix, he's going to be legit and that'll help us. Instead of really, really, really hiring somebody, dedicating those finances and kind of gambling a little bit to say, we're going to have a third party steer this boat for us. So drive the boat for us. I don't know, drive the car, whatever you want to say. Um, we're going to have somebody take the helm. <laughs> and that way, my, my partner doesn't feel pressure from me. And I know that at least somebody's guiding this the right way. So I've, I've definitely overcoached. I, get, I definitely overcoached um, Ian instead of kind of like letting us be us. Kurt, with Kurt Topple, I just kind of wanted him to let him do his thing because he was an athletic freak. Me and Hudson, my very first partner, we probably tried to overcoach each other because we were just figuring it out the whole time and we were both kind of alpha so we would you know, we'd hit heads a lot, but we eventually, you know, came to a conclusion and decided on things. It's tough when you don't have a conversation of 
who say is final. You know, if we go 50-50, if we go head to head and we both are locked into our ground, who gets to make the call? And your team has to promise that in order to be successful and has to accept that role. And whether, you know, even in that conversation, are you are you locked 50-50? I should make the decision. No, I should make the decision. Okay. Well, if that's it, then you say, we're going to flip a coin right now. And if we ever disagree completely and we can't discuss it, then this person, whoever wins this coin toss, gets to make the decision. Because otherwise you get stuck in that battle. Kind of battling whose ideas are better or what roles are. I think more beach teams will be more successful um, when they have those weird relationship conversations. And I, I, I know that I failed in certain parts of my career where I overcoached and I would rather have turned on my player more than my coach. And that's what I'm hoping to do for the next few seasons is give somebody complete control over our team and say, I trust you to make the decisions. And I'm just going to be a player. Yeah, that's such a good point that you need to front load these situations that are going to happen because you're, you're totally right. I can picture this happening. We're in an argument and now it's 50-50 and neither one of us wants to budge where if we had that conversation leading into it where things are calm and a little bit more rational, then like that's going to be the tiebreaker. And I think it, not a lot of people have preloaded these conversations of things that are going to happen. So that that is a really good point. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. We had Todd Rogers on the show and we just kind of talked a little bit about sometimes good players don't turn into good coaches because maybe they haven't thought the game or maybe they were more athletically gifted and they didn't really have to think or battle or learn new skills. So I'm curious with you going into coaching, just based on some of the content you've shared, you say such amazing nuggets and such a like it's complex information, but it's in such a clear way about like explaining the value of the line to line serve. Or I just watched one recently about when you dig a cut shot, you have to create space before you can approach. Otherwise you get stuck underneath the ball. But the way you explained it is so awesome. So I'm curious, were those things that you picked up because of playing and you were a guy who would like to think the game and battle through these situations? Or did somebody instruct you to do this? Like the, let's use the cut shot example. To me, that's so obvious but it's still a difficult thing for athletes to get even at like a, an adult level where they might not have acquired that skill or thought about that situation enough well thanks thanks for watching buddy <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of it comes from the coaches and mentors that i've talked to a lot of it a lot of the advice that i give myself as a player um and then when i make those videos is how much I coach and I see like those unique problems. The one that you're talking about, like the cut shot and create space from the net, believe it or not, that came from Krav Maga. So I do some, not a lot, but I do a little bit of martial arts training. And when they teach you to stand up uh, in martial arts, they basically teach you that like fighting is probably the worst thing you can do. There's the highest amount of damage that you can do to your body and the highest chance that you can go to jail. So you want to like strike quick and get out and avoid the fight. In Krabaga, when you get up from, from the ground, you need to immediately upon getting up, create space from your opponent and keep your hands by your face. And as soon as my instructor said that in that martial arts class, I was like, oh, man, 
this is <laughs> this is how you're this is exactly how you pass a short ball. This is exactly how you dig a cut shot, like once you're down there. And so a lot of what I teach comes from things that I learn for sure, things that I translate from different sports and different activities. And then a lot of just trying to explain it in 19 different ways. Like that's my responsibility as a coach. If a player doesn't understand me when I was a young coach, I would just get flustered and red and be like, why don't you get it? Now I get flustered and red as like, I'm failing as a coach if I can't find the right translation to make it make sense to you. So I keep trying to find those different ways. And it comes from advice from other players. It comes from advice from other coaches. It comes from um, different sports. And then a lot of it, probably the majority of it, comes from how did I lose a lot of points? <laughs> a lot of it comes from like, where did I lose my points? And I think a lot of ex-player who are currently coaches, they will harp so much on the skills that made, that they think made them the most successful. And they think we kind of undercut them, you know? And Everybody is looking through their own lens and coaching through their own lens. So I know that when I coach my players, because of the pain points that I felt in my playing career, and with a little bit of bonuses from other coaches and the way that I see other athletes do things. Now, is there any advice or a strategy you would give to either coaches or younger players listening about how do you get down to like what the actual truth was? So you watch your game back and you go, oh man, I got so many digs, but I didn't convert them into kills. How does your brain switch to, oh, if I just switch my footwork, I can get a better approach and I'm going to have my vision. I can hit with power and range versus, oh, so-and-so didn't set me that well. I got so many digs, but they just didn't put me on. And that's why I wasn't converting because I'm sure there's athletes who can talk themselves into those stories, right? So I'm curious how you got down to the truth or what you could do to help the situation. Yeah, that's a good point. You watch film and you look at yourself and you're like, okay, I, I hit, you know, 200 today. Like, you know, I only killed 20% of the balls. And then you start saying, okay, well, that was a tight set. Oh, well, that was an offset. And then you're not even looking at the quality of your dig and how hard you made it on your setter. And now you're starting to look for excuses to protect your own ego of like why you didn't put it away. So where do you find it? Number one, you go to the world's best teams and you say, what are they doing? What are things that they do every single time that I'm not doing <laughs> one at a fender? Um, something as simple as like shuffling outside after your pass. Right? Just like to be able to create a little bit of space for your right arm. How much difference that makes is incredible. Right? Being able to like go back when there's side wind to run a backside offense and take some swings. And I tell my players again and again, and they see it again and again, that I can give you a couple pieces of advice and without any technical coaching or work on changing, if you just do the things that I tell you that don't require any training, if you space yourselves correctly, you will get three, four more points per set 
just because you're always in a great position to get a kill. Maybe you're not going to get that kill every time, but you're always, you've increased your percentage of being able to get that kill. So the first thing is looking at a, the world's best and what they do every time. And now, you know, we have 40 year old blockers looking at 23 year old blockers saying, why are they getting so many blocks per game and studying them and saying, oh man, that's how they do it. That's really smart. Okay, we're going to do it. So the game has been innovated in the last five years for sure. The Norwegians, and now you can see like Adrian uh, from Italy slash Florida. Like <laughs> he's, he's an innovator for sure. His style of play is going to change beach volleyball 100%. Uh, the way that the Norwegians play defense they have already changed beach volleyball. Like we went through a massive evolution in the last five years of how the game is played, how blockers think, how defenders think. And it's, it's awesome. Um, and then hopefully somebody keeps, keeps gathering all of these statistics. You know, the more people that, that pump in these statistics, the more you realize, okay, that's how you go. That's how you go. But statistics only go so far in sport. And then you have to say, all right, well, what's the next innovation? If everybody is striving for 565 inside out, what's the next innovation? How does the next person get 565? So if you want to get to the open level of your local tournament, you find out what the best players in the world are doing. You watch my videos if you want. Like we, <laughs> we share exactly what all the world's best teams are doing. Um, and you can emulate that. Then once you have that as a base, then there's artistic freedom that you can just start developing your own style and flavor. And I look forward to seeing what the next evolution is. I'm glad you mentioned that conversation you had with the German team about like, oh, we've figured out this float serve speed that they won't share with anyone. Because it reminded me, I heard Anders Mole on a podcast the other week, and he's talking about in their defense, he blocks the hit and Christian chases the shot. And I'm thinking that's way too simple that you guys just aren't sharing the actual secret. You're just telling us that's what you do. But that's what reminded me about your German story. But uh, looking at Better at Beach, uh, one thing I really enjoy is it is an online resource. But in speaking to you before the show, you're still coaching in person and running camps and programs, right? So if they don't have a chance just based on geography to work with you, there's a great online resource center, right? But you're still coaching kids face-to-face, right, in this environment? Is that is that true? Yeah, I coach kids from time to time. Um, where I found my niche, I guess, or like uh, my passion is in adults because I just felt like so many adults start playing volleyball as adults and that the kids, no offense to all the juniors and everyone out there, that like the juniors hog all of the great coaches because there's so much money in there because parents like chalk money into their kids. I always, I was, what was I? All right, I was 16 when I first started playing volleyball. I was 19 when I really started picking it up. And when I started, there were not coaches. And I just had to dig and search and study and watch hundreds of hours of film to try to come up with my own answers. And I said, there is a better way. Somebody's got to take the lead and increase the entire community of beach volleyball and get everything that the pros know into the hands of every amateur. And so I found my niche in adults and 
the online courses that we've built are extensive. Like I just finished a 30 day setting course that had three meetings per week. Um, the, my players said that they invested something like nine or 10 hours per week into that course, which I didn't realize that they were putting as much time as I was putting into it. <laughs> Did it fix your arm swing in 21 days, which actually took something like seven days. And again, another three meetings a week plus all of your, um, drill responsibilities and exercises we have a 60-day fitness program that is designed specifically every exercise just for beach volleyball players so i just wanted to create something that like answered or was a solution to all the problems that i faced as a 19 to 27 year old beach volleyball player trying to like figure out what to do. How do I get to the next level? How do I get from B to A or A to double A? And so we create a pretty cool company and we run a bunch of camps. We run a bunch of classes. We have now three cities um, operating. We have Tampa, we have Utah, we have uh, Hermosa Beach outside of COVID time. And uh, we're starting to run some travel destinations. And next year, you get we might be my first uh, <laughs> I'll share it with you. Just, just a little teaser. <laughs> um next year after the season, my plan is to do a big uh world tour with my fiance. Maybe she'll be my wife then. Uh and I want to run camps around the entire world. So one to two camps every two weeks. Uh, all across the world and we'll like tell the entire world where we are at that time. We'll find a beach or a sand court and we'll say, hey, anyone want to go to Latvia in April? We're going to be there running a camp. Here's the local hotel that we partnered with. So we're, we're busy. You know, we're, we got the online courses and we've got a lot of big plans, but the main goal is to put good, high-level, detailed information into the hands of nice yeah i'm glad we could break some news there you know really be a top tier show so thank you for sharing the secrets there and and congratulations on your uh recent engagement too that's really exciting i appreciate that it's awesome it's, it's crazy how exciting uh, <laughs> it was like i asked her and and she said of course which was a good answer <laughs> and i was like this is awesome you know <laughs> I, I don't know how to describe the feeling but i was so so fired up and I'm, I'm pretty happy she said yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Now I'm curious, we have a similar situation in Canada where there's a ton of people who play four on four, or six on six at the beach in their local communities and they really enjoy beach volleyball. But I, I feel like if Sam Pedlow is walking down the boardwalk and they might not recognize him. We, we have a lot of people who enjoy and play volleyball, but we don't have a lot of fans. And I'm wondering with your interaction with kind of the adult rec division, is there a way to get them connected? So they're watching volleyball with kind of an educated eye and they can get into it because I'll give credit to the NFL as a guy who's never played football. You listen to Tony Romo break down a game and you feel like, Oh, I know what's going on here. Where sometimes when uh, I think a non-volleyball person tries to watch beach, they probably think it's oh, two people in a ball. It's not that hard. I don't really know what's going on with the details and the tactics, right? So with you coaching them up, has that switched them on to being fans of either the AVP or the World Tour? Interesting. Um, I'm sure that it eventually translates to them being fans of the pro level. But 
I think it comes more from them selfishly just really wanting to be better, to feel more confident uh, in their game, to feel like they are athletes again or for the first time. I don't know if it's creating fans, but it definitely creates a groundswell where the more people who play beach volleyball and who subscribe to beach volleyball things, the stronger the sport gets. That's that's for sure. But are we creating people that is a big question. You might have to edit this little pause because I want to think <laughs> about it man. What do you think? Yeah, I feel like when people bring up volleyball, I don't think we're going to win the TV battle. But I think seeing what you're doing with your content online, like I think if people want to be fans, they can still consume it. But I'm still at a loss of connecting people who will play every Thursday night with their buddies on their team, but they don't know that, you know, Melissa and Sarah won a world championship. They probably don't even know what the Canadian national team is. So I, I there's just a blind spot to me that... I feel like if, if Connor McDavid or Sidney Crosby, two amazing hockey players walk into a grocery store, they're getting mobbed where I think beach volleyball players are ghosts right now in Canada. And I'm really trying to think of how do we close that gap or at least celebrate that if you're going to play a sport, how do you become the fan of that sport? You know who I, I love these guys. Uh, and they've got enough fans. So I guess we'll just throw in some more, but the McKibben brothers who have a fantastic YouTube channel, they've, They've taken that entire idea onto their shoulders that beach volleyball in order to be successful, in order to grow. And they started out doing like a couple of tutorials. And then they told me, which was kind of a relief to me <laughs> that they're like, yeah, we don't really want to do the tutorials and teaching anymore. We want to create stories. We want to get people involved with personalities in our sport and get them to fall in love with people and get them obsessed with the lifestyle that beach volleyball provides. And they have incredibly entertaining videos and posts um, and blogs. And now like that they're on the uh, amazing race, but they are taking that where they're not as successful competitively, but they might be the most recognizable in terms of numbers of fans, beach volleyball players on the, on the planet, which is incredible, right? So now they've created a story, they've created entertainment, and they've given little bits of, of advice as well. So I think people like them, creative people who are willing to invest their time into creating stories is what's going to do it for me surfing being from new york city like surfing wasn't a thing that i cared about i didn't think i would vibe with but the documentaries that people make from surfing and from rock climbing and from snowboarding and skiing like those filmmakers make you just absolutely think that you are a rock climber, that you are a surfer. You just don't do it ever. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it's a very good point. I don't know if you feel the same way, but that's how I feel when I watch a surf documentary that I'm like relating to these people that if I were just on a beach with them, I would feel exactly the same way. And so now 
yeah, there's a small part of my soul that is a surfer, that is a rock climber. I'm just, you know, like 10 years of training away from where the people are <laughs> in that video on. So I, I think the McKibbins are doing great. And I think that they are providing that answer and that more people can jump on board for that and create those good personalities and, and tailor stories that are interesting. And that's what NFL film does, right? Um, I'm sure that in Canada, you guys have something similar like NHL film, where all you do is follow this guy home. You see him drive to practice. You see him wake up in the morning, then lift and practice, then watch film. And it's like you start developing a relationship with that character. And that's what makes you fall in love with maybe him, but really, in essence, the sport. I think that that might be a good long-winded answer to that very simple question. <laughs> no, that's great. And I'm just looking at the clock. You had to kind of mission to get on the show with the, what the weather's doing there in Utah. And I know your fiance is probably waiting for you to get off the phone here. And I did promise you an hour, but one thing we're trying to make a tradition on the show is just, you've told some amazing stories so far. I was hoping you could just give us one more laugh before we let you go. Just something that volleyball provided that's, Maybe you wouldn't have got this experience or this road story without being a high-level volleyball player. Everything that my life has given me, it would be hard to... Oh, and I know I, I tried to start thinking of this and then my car started sliding down an ice hill. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I, I guess I could give you like a two... Or three or four. Uh, <laughs> so I've uh, I've bartended now in I think it's something like eight countries because of beach volleyball. When I go on those vacations, the like beach volleyball coaching vacations, I make it a mission. I don't know why, but I make it a mission to get the bartender to get me behind the bar so that I can serve the players. Um, and I'm, I was experienced at a college. Like that was my other job in college was, was bartending. So I've bartended in Turkey. I've bartended in Spain. I got behind a bar in New Zealand and served drinks. Uh, I was a bartender in Australia. And these are all jobs. Well, half of them are jobs where I got paid and the other half was just like a stupid party. Um, uh, Austria. Norway, and that's close to it. But I've, I've gotten to bartend in a lot of cool countries randomly, even if it was for only an hour or two. Another one is like, I'll tell the story of me and Jeremy Casebeer in Australia. We went there to play the, the full Australian season. We had no money. And Australia was worth more than like the Australian dollars worth more than the US dollar. And their pro tour does not have a lot of prize money. So we're traveling to all these stops and we eventually finally like get the really tough, big Maori uh, security guards on our side. And they agree to start letting us sleep in the players' tent overnight during those <laughs> tournaments. <laughs> <laughs> because we're like we, li I mean, we're down to like 
less than $700 in our bank accounts. And I'm bartending and I'm trying, but I'm also trying to like play in the pro tour in Australia. And so uh, we got these extra long tablecloths. We actually bought extra long tablecloths. So if the security guard didn't get in trouble, he's like, you can't get in trouble, you can't get in trouble. Like, Look at this. And we would sleep underneath the tables in the player's tent on the beach for the professional tournament to save money. And I don't think that, um, that I would be doing that. I don't think that I would be in a professional athlete venue sleeping under picnic tables <laughs> and competing the next day without beach volleyball. So that, that might be me and Jeremy's story. <laughs> Yeah, for a guy who played football and baseball in high school, I'm sure when you were thinking, oh, I can do this volleyball thing, that you never thought that you'd be sleeping underneath the table to make it pro when you hear the stories of what baseball players and football players make, that you're like, oh, yeah, volleyball's got to be high level up there. No, you're you're literally sleeping in the player's tent bribing security guards. <laughs> it was awesome. And then, you know, it, it feels good to know that, like, Nick and Phil, they've got those stories too, where they literally like drove through the night to play tournaments on Saturdays and on Sundays, sleeping like under the bleachers just to compete. If you want it, if you've got the passion and the fire, you will do literally anything to make it happen. And that's that's what makes athletes last in this sport. So. Well, amazing, man. I want to thank you so much for, you know, answering a random Instagram message to come on the show and sharing all that you did and definitely have to check out better at beach volleyball to see the, the online content you've got going on. And just thanks for all the stories you shared with us. Hopefully uh, some more Canadian fans transfer over to you and pay attention to all the good stuff you're doing. Yeah, that'd be awesome. I appreciate you having me on and dedicating a late night to this. Well, I apologize for, for being so late, but it's, it's always good to speak to anybody who's a fan and a developer of beach volleyball, like we're talking about with the McKibbins, you know, like guys like you who create channels that create interest. If people don't understand right now that every like, every subscription that they give to guys like you and podcasts like yours, that is something free that they can give you that helps you continue to do what you do. Because companies see that. And then they make beach volleyball bigger and better everywhere because companies eventually see big money companies say, wait a second, there's 8 million people who are paying attention to this. Man, we need to dump some money into here so we can talk to those people. So every subscription, like, comment, it's free for anybody who does it. They should 100% be subscribing, liking everything that you do. And it helps them be a part of growing their own sport, which I think is huge. Don't listen for free. Just subscribe, hit that like button, and share it with somebody so that we can continue. Yeah. Well said, and thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, of course, man.